All right, guys, we got the intro to the intro again, like we do. Uh, so I want to talk to you about our sponsor, our continued sponsor, not just our sponsor, our continued sponsor. It's none other than Bad Motivator Barrels. You can see them right above my head. That's the Gariana Oak. Anyway, beyond that, let's get into it. So why am I redoing the intro to the intro? Well, Christopher and I from Bad Mill Legacy had talked and uh, yeah, we were doing the Shaman 5. We were like, hey, this is cool. Let's do the Shaman 5. Um, but we realized that it was, it was it's been going well. And thank you to Paul who all, um, you know, picked up a barrel, used the code. We we both appreciate it. It gives us a good kind of diagram of, of who's wanting a barrel and who's not. And uh, thank you to for everybody who came uh, and uh, chimed in on the giveaway. It was amazing. We had a good turnout for that as well. Um, and no, I haven't lost my hair yet. I uh, haven't started treatment, so I haven't lost no hair. <laughs> soon, soon, it's coming. Um, one, of, one of the things we decided is we're gonna do a affiliate link. And so what the affiliate link does is it basically, you click on the link, it tells Ben, uh, Ben, Ben, rest in peace, brother. It tells Chris, um, it tells him that somebody from the podcast is going to the, the website and it knows to ding that. And so like, I get a little bit off of it, but yet he doesn't lose any money on it. Does that make sense? So it's just like the affiliate links from uh, Amazon and stuff like that. Only this is supporting a local company. Not local to me, but local, you know, American company. Um, as as you well know, Badmo makes amazing barrels, small barrels for craft guys, for home distillers, for what, for whoever. I, I use them. I like to take a uh, new make from uh, a local distillery, Andalusia mainly, mostly. Anyway, um, and I take them, put them in there. Like that one is uh, some rum. Yeah. I'm not just whiskey. I like a little rum too. It's a special project. We'll talk about that later. Anyway, um, so you get some white dog, some new make, throw it in there, let it sit for a while, and you have some whiskey, you have some rum, you have some brandy, whatever you want to do. You throw it in there, you're going to get a cool outcome. So think about a bad motivator. Go to badmotivatorbarrels.com. That's going to be the link. It'll have an affiliate thing at the end of it you'll click the affiliate link i'm going to have it on every podcast um, i'm going to try and have it on every post i do if i can manage that um and then you just click on that it'll take you to the website you buy a barrel i get a ding christopher gets a ding winner winner chicken dinner so um again thank you guys all for the support and uh enjoy the podcast because you know it's a banger you know it is. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. Today we got a special guest. I say that all the time. I'm I evidently I'm getting special guests. <laughs> but we have Michael from Yellow Rose Distilling. Um, and he's gonna talk to us about his personal uh things that he's doing, why he why he became a distiller and stuff. But we're also gonna talk about Yellow Rose and some of their products. Uh, I personally am sipping on their uh, rye whiskey. I just picked that up today. 
Um, and uh, we're going to kind of go through their products and talk about that. But without further ado, here, here's Michael. How's it going, man? Thanks for having me. No problem. Yeah, so um, uh, just just want to shout out real quick. You can find us over at yallroastdistilling.com. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at, at distillerlangen. Uh, but thank you for having me today. Really excited to sit down and chat, enjoy a little whiskey, share yeah, my absolutely. story, share the story of Yellow Rose, and uh, hopefully just have a good chat, have a good time. Absolutely. That's what we're all about. So so give us a little background kind of on your personal thing, because, you know, I've talked to quite a few people, and I'm not trying to incriminate anybody, but a lot of the, the people that I talk to, they start out with the whole distilling community in their shed, in their garage, doing things like that. Is that a similar profile to what to what you're doing? I'm, I'm interested to know that. Or did you come from a corporate background and just think, hey, this is cool. Let's try this. So that's what I'm really interested about. So go ahead and give us a little bit of your background story and we can go sure, from there. Sure. No, um, I actually got into this, this whole distilling thing uh, back, gosh, like over 10, 12 years ago. Um, and I got it, it too on the legitimate end. My first job at a distillery was at a proper little craft oh, distillery and okay. proper little craft distillery might be being a little generous for what it was at the time because it was actually in a garage sandwiched between a tire change place and, uh, and a guy, a, a Mexican guy who did really cheap auto body work and repair. And we had the unit in the middle of those two. So to say I learned how to distill in a garage is probably fairly accurate, but uh, <laughs> I had the good fortune to learn on a 125 gallon uh alambic uh iberian style copper pot still with with a direct flame and that that, yeah so it was it was a fun setup um really cool thing to learn on but that's kind of where i got my start out there in uh, california actually but i came from the the craft beer world uh before that so i'd been in craft beer had been kind of the head brewer solo brewer at a brew pub for about five years had gone to a medium packing brewery had to have the um the misfortune to be involved in an industrial accident there and got pretty badly hurt. Um, came out of that and like, um, sort of like I was out for almost a year recovering, um, oh, wow. had a head injury and uh, came back and like, you know, totally new leadership inside the destroy. I didn't really know anybody anymore. My sort of track and position had evaporated and, you know, never really got any traction again with them and just kind of got a little bit frustrated and um, happened upon a guy who, who really needed somebody to make mash. And I was a beer guy, so I knew all about mash. Right. And so I came in and interviewed with him. And, you know, that was the beginning of my distillation career. I was there at the distillery in the Sonoma County for about uh, seven, eight years. And it was a little 780 square foot spot when I started with one little still and, you know, a, um, a 600 gallon mash ton that was basically just a big metal pot that he had attached a bunch of augers, uh, agitators to. You hand loaded the grain. It was a, I mean, it was a lovely, chaotic little thing. When I was young, I just loved being in the trenches working on it, but really got in on the practical side, on the mash side, and was kind of told, like, listen, I'm always going to do the distilling. That's that's where I want to have my point of impact. I was like, I'm good, man. I'll just make the mash Um, because it looks like you could use some help there. So did that, and at some point, he's like, okay, I'm going to teach you how to run the still because I need you to do all the stripping runs, these first runs, this real, really time-consuming, especially on a pot fill especially yeah. on a direct fire still. It's like, there's a lot going on. You got to be with it the whole time. And, um, but got started like that. And that little place grew and grew. When I left, we had just kind of finished putting together a $5 million distillery. And then I had the opportunity basically to come out here to uh, Yellow Rose in Texas, got recruited to come out here and basically uh, lead the operation. And I've been wow. here for about four or five years ever since. Awesome. Awesome. So, so you coming from a beer background, 
And we've talked to a couple of people who have had a kind of beer background like that. So you really nerd out on the yeast and the fermentation time and the fermentation temperature, even with oh, yeah. the whiskeys, correct? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, it's a, I mean, like so much of what you're going to find in the distillate starts with your ingredients, starts with your fermentation. I mean, like there's only so many things you get to control in this, right? Cause like, yeah. we're going to stick this thing in a barrel for four or five years and the barrel's going to do a lot of magic to the liquid. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like if you don't start with a firm, solid base there at the grain level, like, you know, the grain, if you don't put sound grain into the mash, if you don't have the right mash chemistry, if you don't have a productive and clean fermentation and you don't and you don't have an efficient and suitable yeast. Well, you're not going to have. And, you know, trust me, because as many times as I've gotten it wrong, there's those experiments we've tried to run where we didn't quite get it as good as we would have liked. Right. And I'm like, you know, that discipline, man, it's it's heartbreaking to run almost because you're like, man, it fights you the whole way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's like the product thing. You're like, I'm just, you know, this is, man, it's a huge waste. It's real yeah. tough to, to live with sometimes. But yeah, it's, um, you know, that grain and terroir and all that stuff that you get from using local grain, both the distilleries that I've had the opportunity to work with have really had this ethos of using uh, locally sourced in-state grain. So Sonoma Distilling Company or Sonoma Distilling Company now that I worked with before, was a grain to glass, all California grain distillery focused oh, wow. on rye and a little bit of bourbon. And then, you know, yellow rose with the two bourbons that we make in house, they're 100% Texas grain as well and Texas multigrain. Um, so, you know, we're really fortunate in that respect, or I feel kind of blessed that to work for two distilleries that really kind of get us like, well, you got to make the, the, the liquid about the place, right. you know, so having that opportunity to work with and do those things rather than having a really uh, commercially driven ethos around the the liquid. Sometimes it's, it's a real nice benefit. Right. Right. So, so with, with that kind of, and, you know, we love to get really nerdy and go into the, into the deep end <laughs> on, on all of this. Um, like with the, with the place you were with in California, um, were you making beer as well as spirits or just spirits? Just spirits. It was okay. actually a pure whiskey distillery. So both oh, cool. distilleries that I've worked with in my in my career basically have both been pure whiskey distilleries, which, which to be honest, even in the craft world is pretty rare. It is. Uh, especially, especially when I was starting out like 12 years ago, it's like basically every distillery had to um, had to do everything, right? Because that was usually the model for success is like, yeah, you know, for most people, a target or the ultimate evolution was going to be a brown product, right? Probably right. whiskey or maybe brandy. Um, but you know, what you did to pay the bills until that stuff was ready was usually gin and vodka or, yes. uh, liqueurs or whatever else that you could kind of string together. Right. Um, and you know, it was really, I, I thought it was really neat to work for two, you know, to work for two operations. I was like, no, 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 it's, it's whiskey. You know, that's the thing we're going to focus on. We're going to be experts on this. We're going to own these two things and just go with that. You know, that's, Sonoma that's... and y'all rose little bit different animals but very very similar in that respect so 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 with and and i mean i don't want you to give away any trade secrets or anything like that <laughs> but with with both of those um i know yellow rose has been around for what over 10 years now is that correct yeah so both distillers ironically founded in 2010 both okay. part of that sort of what you could call like the great recession boom to craft yes. distillation absolutely so you know i joined back in 2012 i want to say at sonoma so it was only a few years old when i joined okay. again it was incredibly small at the time like you right. know m the garage um, past my house right now was bigger than the space we were working <laughs> <in>. so <laughs> it's just funny. like you know it kind of boggles my mind to think back on it and look where they're at now and see yeah. what i'm doing out here in texas I'm like man you know like it was very humble beginnings back then absolutely. i mean it was like you know uh 
we were filling up five gallon buckets and every time that sucker got over half full, I was like, okay, let's swap that out. That's precious. We got to get that in the tank. Absolutely. Um, you know, no pumps, no nothing. You got up the ladder, you put it in the, you put it down the funnel and into the tank by hand. And oh, it was a, I mean, it was archaic, but I loved it. And I mean, Absolutely. it was a great way to learn, I think. And, you know, the market was uh, appreciative of that time and just anything that was coming out. Yeah. And so like with, with Sonoma, that that's the name of the one out of California, correct? Okay. With them, did they source any sort of whiskey before they? No. So, so it was, and I, it, they started out like literally they made kind of everything to start. So they, at one right. point even made like a, a poutine. Uh, they made okay. a little bit of brandy at one point okay. they made rum. Like, you know, when I came into the business, basically the guy who ultimately kind of took it where it is today, got a gentleman named Adam, he had, he was just in the process of buying out his former business partner, who was sort of the distillation expert. Okay. And uh, maybe the tradition of people that you alluded to earlier that have, how should we say this, a little bit more roguish uh, roots. Um, he was definitely from that tradition, right? Okay. So, and, you know, Adam was the sales and market guy. Uh, and then he kind of became the distillation guy and bought his partner out and I became like the operations mash. Like I knew how to run stuff. I had worked in production atmospheres and I knew what you had to do to make it work right and how to chart it, how to log it, how to, you know, how to make it repeatable. So that kind of became my role. Um, but yeah, I mean, they didn't source anything. And I remember many times there was that debate, like, do we wait for our stuff to get really, really good? And we just kind of push through this and it's just part of the evolution. Right. Or should we go out there and like buy some stuff? And just put everything in 53s because we went through the whole evolution of like two gallon to five gallon to 15 gallon to 30 gallon to yeah. 53 gallon. Yeah. So like it was, um, I mean, and you know, it, it was interesting. I came here to Yellow Rose and they were in that same journey where it's like, oh, we were, mo we're moving out of small barrels. You know, Yellow Rose day only barrels in 53 gallon barrels. That right. was one of like my first critical achievements for the brand under my tenure is like, no, no, we have to move away from all this stuff. Yeah. Economically, it's like, you know, it's just really not feasible, especially nowadays. Barrels have gotten so, so expensive with the scarcity of them. Yeah. And they're just even just hard to get, period. Um, that is like, yeah, it's it can get real difficult to get that whiskey in the barrel and out to the bottle in a small format, I think. And, you know, for me, 30s is kind of the smallest size format I've ever really enjoyed working with. You can get some really good quality whiskey out of 15s, but they're tricky um 30s to my opinion like they very much sort of replicate 53 like flavor that full format flavor a little shorter timeline but a little bit more tannin profile right. so it's just a balancing act yeah so Absolutely. you know all those operations you know somebody didn't source yeah i mean yellers is kind of on the other side of that coin we certainly do source um you know so you know premium american is like it's a blend so we just we right. source whiskeys from all over to put it into a blended product to have and in many ways that blend is sort of is our volume driver in the place of something like a vodka or gin. right and right. the the rye that you have there i can mm -hmm. i'm not i'm not ashamed to say it was made by some of the finest distilleries in indiana um who okay. make a credible rye and you know we buy that rye basically brand new from them bring it here to texas age it out and then make our selections about what we put in the bottle okay um so you know did we distill it no I mean, I won't claim that we did, right. um, but, you know, we, we do take a lot of pride in it. You know, it is a product that we like. Um, but I think honestly for us are, you know, the things that we're most proud of are our two bourbons. So the outlaw yes. and then Harris County, the, the newest edition. Right. Right. And, and, and that, that's a good caveat into, into this whole yellow rose. Like, like I said, I'm, I'm sipping on the rye and I noticed just, you know, I'm one of those guys that look at the label. I look at all the everything and it says uh age for at least one year so that was aged completely in texas correct 
Correct. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So it does have a lighter color and stuff like that. But yeah. being and that one's being, uh, go ahead. Interesting, because like it says one year, and as you know, it's like you you go by the age of the youngest drop in the bottle, right? Right. So it's actually a blend of three minimum three year and minimum one year, and in some instances it's been like two and four. So it's te- there have been instances where like the liquid in the bottle is technically a straight rye. Okay. But to go through the process of like changing the label and knowing that maybe we're not going to maintain that consistency batch to every batch, like yeah, it's um you know if you were to look at the back of like uh, Harris County or Outlaw, you know I mm-hmm. think Outlaw still says one year as well. Yes. Uh, the outlaw that my guys are harvesting right now for their newest batch is going to be four years old, and it's just a case where it's like, hey, we're just kind of catching up on the the label and the packaging side with that, where it's like. Okay, we're finally getting there. Harris County, I believe, says 30, you know, 30 months on the back because I'm like, you know, at the time when we started doing the harvesting, I was like, I'm not prepared to take any liquid below 30 months based on what I've tasted. Right. You know, the reality is just like outlaw. It's basically four years now, too. So these are like, like straight and straight. You know, I right. these don't even require age statements technically right. anymore for the liquid we're starting to harvest. And that'll be the case moving into the future. But that rise is, is an interesting beast. In fact, um, it is, it you is. know. The thing I kind of like about it is because it's a lot lighter because of that young rye, the spice note is not like, you know, coming from Sonoma, like we were a rye house. We did mm-hmm. a 100% California rye. Um, and I'm like, you could definitely, I remember many times tasting through barrels. It's like, whoop, that's a spice bump. We're just kind of like, okay, there's like a limit to how many of these you can put in a bash before it becomes unpowerful to the common man. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I would say like the yellow rose rye is kind of the, the other side of that coin. It's a real, it's a much more muted spice. It's more focused on sort of the the leather, nut, like figginess, graftiness sometimes that you get out of the rye and left on sort of that, that either that hot spice or that white pepper. Right. Right. And, and one, one thing that I noticed on the smell as well, it's like it, it gets a good like and I get this a lot in rise and I don't know if this is a 95.5 or if it's the it is. OK, so normally with 95.5s, you get a lot more like of a and of course, this being younger, it might not have developed that yet. But uh, like a eucalyptus or something like that. But mm-hmm. I'm getting a lot more like green apple or, you know, like a, yeah. a tart, a tartness to it, um, which is really nice. And so like, this would be great in an old fashioned or something like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty good, neat as well, but I th- I feel like it would really shine in an old fashioned where you have the, the that presence of that there uh, along with a little sweetness and stuff like that. I think it, I think it would shine and we'll, we'll see what happens with that later on. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's for Instagram, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, you know, with the rye kind of the, you know, because there's so many 95.5 Indiana source rise, right? And I'm right. like, you can only really recast that coin so many times. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Dickle even has a Indiana source rye. And what do they do? They run it through a Lincoln County process to put ownership on it, right? So yep. what did we do? A, we're going to bring the barrels to Texas. You know, they're going to live here. And two, well, let's try to make something, you know, the Texas palate doesn't really love, you know, in whiskey, that super spiciness. What's the most popular whiskey in Texas? It's Crown Royale. Texas and it's crown and Coke is the number one drink. Right. So it's like, okay, Texans like sweet whiskey. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like, okay, we got to bend that way. It's like, let's dial back the spice. Let's make it more approachable. You know, I think that's kind of the, kind of the, um, if you look at our bourbons are kind of the similar story. It's like, okay, like, you know, even the high rye, it's like, well, it's high rye, but like, you know, let's make sure there's a lot of sweetness in this. We got a lot of good bourbon character. We're really lucky in Houston with the climate that, um, 
the way that the distal interacts with the barrel, we get a ton of wood sugar extraction. Uh, so we get a lot of sweetness in both of our bourbons for that. And and I know personally, I have had uh, the Outlaw. I I got to try the Harris. Um, I haven't been able to pick up a bottle because in my air for some reason in my area, um, mm -hmm. it's not it's not there. I I see it like at at a uh, you know like a, a whiskey uh, bar, and you know I'll get a pour of it there. But like to get a bottle of it makes it a little bit difficult. But I've had the Outlaw, and when I first tried it, I said, man, that has a high rye content and then i look at the back of it and i'm like that's 100 percent corn what the you know, heck it's, you know? that's the craziest thing and it's i think what most people it's just like there's a really strong almost like cinnamon candy pop mm -hmm. there at the yes. end of outlaw and people are like man the rye content has got to be pretty high on this one i was like no nah, sorry but that's like 100 percent texas yellow dent corn from the panhandle and like yeah. no way i'm like yeah. no that's that spice is actually from the distillation so that's actually a we're targeting that flavor profile in the distillation cuts themselves. Okay. So like it's a, a particular segment of the run that we're always looking to incorporate to give us that sort of cinnamon pop at the end. And I mean, you could take it, taste it in the distillate stream when it's coming through. Oh, really? And basically right after that fades out is the end of the run. Um, okay. So that's kind of our marker almost. So, so it's, so it's, so it's low, it's low in the, in the hearts. Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah. I mean, well, you know, relatively speaking, low in the hearts is a subjective term. Low in the hearts compared That's to true. who? Um, you know, if we're going to compare ourselves to McCallum, everybody's low in the hearts. You know, <laughs> Absolutely. Cuts super high. Super you know, high. Low in the hearts compared to a lot of legacy or mainstream American whiskeys. I, I'd say we're probably pretty similar. Okay. Again, I think it comes down to the terroir of that corn coming yes. in out of the Texas panhandle. And hey, we are using kind of a more um, agronomic variety in Yellow Dent, right? It's like the most most prolific corn breed in, in the in the country right but right. it grows well it gives a lot of uh sugars you know and you know i think it still gives a great flavor profile too mm -hmm. i mean for a for a one grain bourbon which is in and of itself a very odd thing yes i mean like there's a lot of flavor in that bourbon and it yes, is like is. yeah listen there's there's probably two or three key elements from the distillate and there's um hi bud thanks bud it's all good. Um, it's all good. <laughs> I just want to make sure he didn't grab the whiskey out of my glass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sort of like, yeah, you gotta watch kids, man. On. You gotta watch kids. Going on, but I, I was like, I'm like, just don't. I mean, we're good, yeah. but yeah, we're good. <laughs> I think what he noticed was my uh, my cat was crying at the door because he mm. just, you know, he he has to be up in everything, and Absolutely. my son probably, hey, why is the cat crying at that yeah. door? He, yeah. um, but yeah, no, it's you know, we get one or two good things out of that that um grain in that distillate stream and then a lot outlaw you know we have so many different barrel iterations of outlaw in terms of finishes we've done we've looked at cognacs three different types of sherries rum Let's um, uh, with an h without an h um you know martinique and jamaican so high, super high ester rums and then like rum agricole style rums yep. Yep. so it's you know we played with that a lot uh, we've done a little bit of port uh so it's it's been a lot of fun to play with outlaw in that respect because i'm like it's one of the reasons i kind of enjoy it as a as a liquid i was like man you know this stuff's pretty good on its own and it's it stands up super well on cocktails you can really yes. layer with it um yes. and by that same notion it holds up super well to finishing because that's sometimes the thing that you know my personal opinion is sometimes you get a finished barrel and like oh i can taste that finish 
but I don't know if I really taste that whiskey anymore. Exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. A lot of finish and not much whiskey. Yeah. It's like doing uh, an Amberana finish or something. You're like, it's all I oh taste gosh. is the Amberana. You know, it's like I don't taste yeah, anything I mean, else. Amberana is a special monster. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, especially mm-hmm. here in Texas. I mean, I think here the heat in Texas, even especially down in Houston, is so intense. You know, yeah. we do some of our barrel rest, it's like three months and done. It's yeah. just like, get them in, get them out. Yeah. And I mean, and we've done some long-term ones. I think we did a couple like two-year cognac finishes mm-hmm. and those are incredible. Um, but again, it's sort of like, those are all like, we would just play with them basically. Cause you know, I get a call from a barrel broker. They're like, Hey, do you have any used barrels you want to sell? It's like, well, selling, that's interesting. But what about trading? What do you guys yeah. got on the, what, what do you guys got coming in that I might, what I might like that, you know, I might have a harder time convincing my corporate partners is a good investment. But they're perfectly fine to have me just cycle the money through the business. Right. Like, so, you know, like we played it with, I mean, I'd love to get an amber on a barrel to be fair. Cause A, they last forever. Cause you use yes. them for like a week at a time. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I'm also just like, as busy as we are these days, I'd be so scared about like, oh shit. I forgot. I forgot about, I forgot about it. There for three days. It's yeah. and just, it's absolutely yeah. destroyed the liquid. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, All that time and money and energy. And it's oh, really, gosh. Yeah. They're, 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 I mean, hey, they're super pricey barrels. Like Absolutely. I would say they're definitely on par with some of the best sherry barrels out there right mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. or some of the best Japanese oak barrels. I mean, which are probably the only thing more expensive than the Amberana barrels, right. even harder to get. Yes. Um, but yeah, those, I mean, I'd love to play with some. I've heard great things at the same time. It's just like, man, it's like, um, you know, it's not like playing like, you know, like there's playing with fire when you have a box of matches. Right. There's playing with fire when you have a blowtorch. Yes. Amarada yes. barrels are a blowtorch. It's like, yes, okay, well, let's just be careful with this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's going to get out of hand real fast. Um, I don't, I, I'm, I could have swore you guys, I don't know if it was this year. And if you were there this year, I obviously wasn't. But if you were at the Bastards Ball for the Whiskey Tribe. Yeah, we missed it this year. I think it was okay. just a conflict where it's like Absolutely. I could like there was one of those things. It's like we all got pulled off in the wrong direction, basically right. at the wrong time. And right. um, it was one, I know we were there the year prior. Okay. It was just one of those things. I, so I, like I knew I I knew I had seen y'all there, or if it was at the Texas Whiskey Festival or whatever. But yeah. like no, um, we've you done know, a ton of those, but it was like this year it just didn't work out on the Absolutely. timing. Absolutely. Um, but but the uh, Crowded Barrel, which is their little whiskey place they did an amberana finish they bought a brand new amberana barrel don't ask how much that cost i can't even tell you and they put uh they sourced you know they do a lot of sourcing uh but they do a bunch of finishing stuff they they finished a it was a barton 1792 uh bardstown whatever uh barrel they rested it in there for three days and it was almost over done over and to pull it and then the next time they did it was for five days and so it's like it just it, and he goes every time we do it we can put it in there for maybe seven days you know they've done like four iterations by now i think they're up to 11 days and then after that they gotta pull it it's, it gets too just sort of like you, you gotta be real careful that first one you're like okay so we're gonna put it in on a friday in the afternoon Right. And Monday morning, first thing, this thing's coming out. And we're dumping it. We're dumping, we're dumping it. Exactly. It. exactly. I don't, we're never because, gonna taste it. It's coming out. <laughs> because because um I've I've heard this from other distillers and stuff like that. If you leave it in too long, it almost gets acrid, overdone. Um uh Alan Bishop from Spirits of French Lick said it, it's like cat pee. Um <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, I've smelled what's cat that, pee. What's, what, I, what's that coffee that they harvest? Basically, the beans that some jungle cat eats, and yes, it's yeah, just, it's, yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, 
listen to the right buyer i'm sure it's the most wonderful sure, thing I'm in sure the world it's great. But, i'm sure it's great um, <laughs> um, but you know amber amberana in itself has its place and everybody's finishing i actually was at the liquor store today that's why i picked up this bottle and they had a nulu which nulu i guess kentucky whatever blah blah and they had an amberana finish i almost picked it up because i was like that's something different, but I've got a couple Amberana finished whiskeys and I'm like, they're good. They're not great. You know, they're cinnamon toast crunch. In well, it's, 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 it's like the know. Japanese oak thing, you know, yeah. the Mizunara oaks. Like yeah. it was super popular like mm -hmm. a year ago and like everybody and their mother mm -hmm. did a version of that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the guys who did that first were Brisbane, a tiny little yep. craft distillery yep. off Washington Island in Washington. And they were the first ones to even pioneer getting a barrel. And I don't even think they even got the barrel. They got the wood. Yeah. And they, they brought it they, to a local cooper and had a barrel made in the States. Yes. But they exactly. said they said even that they said it was a two year process just to get that oak out of Japan. Yeah. Like the Japanese were just like incredibly protective of it. Which for good reason, for good reason. Yeah. Um, but but then you also hear about the Mizanara oak and why we're talking about oak, it doesn't matter. But um, with the Mizanara oak, that it can it can be really persnickety in the way that it wants to present because, you know, you get Japanese whiskey, which, of course, that's a totally different climate than we have here. Um, mm -hmm. It will take years and years, like tens of years to mm -hmm. actually get any sort of profile on it. Whereas, obviously, if you brought it here to Texas, you're going to get a lot hotter profile out I, of it and... I, i'd honestly be so scared of bringing it to houston because those barrels are notoriously bad leakers yep because because it's because that oak is so porous it actually is very it's not suitable for barrel construction in no, the tradition it's not. no so it's like you inherit a barrel you know is going to leak like crazy you know like we have like an angel <laughs> share rate over the life of a barrel of like 18 to 23 percent at oh, full gosh. maturity <laughs> so i imagine just even putting it in there to finish and it taking any amount of time and it's a leaky barrel and we have a super hot unclimate controlled warehouse with a ton of humidity i was like god there's not gonna be barrels gonna be goddamn half empty yeah absolutely by the, by the time, time you get done, done with it you're gonna have a whiskey gonna be the, the most expensive whiskey i ever make you know i'm yeah. gonna put a pan under that thing so i can yeah. fill it back up every day yeah you siphon it back in there every day oh like, my it's like, you know it's, yeah, it's I, i'd almost be scared of working with it because i'm like yeah. man we have enough trouble with our own barrels you know it's like you know we have like eight thousand barrels and we recently did an audit it's like we discovered that during the course of the audit like yeah we have some empty barrels in here like they're oh, just crap. dead it just what well, just happens yeah, right and absolutely. i'm like you know listen i think you know on the surface i'm like oh my god it's so much i'm like yeah i mean sure in the literal sense like yeah it's a lot of whiskey in the business sense i'm like just add it to the percentages yeah i mean i hate to i mean it's one but of those it, things like well that's just part of aching business. whiskey in texas basically absolutely. i'm like that's just part of the business like i guess i got another used barrel to sell fresh dumped guys right by the yeah. angels um you know never been opened enjoy yeah. um but yeah it's just it's one of those things that happens you know it's yeah. just you know there are some barrels that are for whatever reason the way the whiskey works on them just or the grain of that wood or how well it was coopered or, there's so many little things that affect barrels um that it's like you know listen leaking is inevitable yes. you know it's i don't know that i've ever come across a barrel of any age that doesn't have some sort of leak marks on it like because at some point you have to heart you have to quality check these yeah like you've got to put a hole in it at some point it's like i've never seen one of these pinholes not leak afterwards they always leak yeah yeah i'm you like just, they'll seal eventually hope, you hope yeah you hope they just swell up or something and, and you're good 
you, yeah. you hope those spirals do their job like they're supposed to and seal back up and swell. I'm going to put, put a good seal on there. But, you know, hey, listen, sometimes they drip a bit. And, you know, I think in Houston especially, like, we can get these massive barometric pressure swings. And that's really where I've always seen it. It's like when you get like, when you go from a lot of pressure to no pressure or the other way around, it's like, you got to imagine like this barrel, A, it's like kind of sealed. It is porous, but right. like, you know, it's a little bit of its own little semi-pressure vessel. And then you're like, you have these huge forces like pushing in and out. And then from the outside too, with the heat, yeah, you have this whiskey, which is expanding. And then it's like, you have all these, like you have these countering balancing. It's like, you know, those barrels are going through a lot. Yeah. I mean, you know, you look at some really old barrels and, you know, we've had the privilege to work with some mezcal and tequila barrels, but like oh, wow. you look at some of those and you run your hand over the head and there can be like a valley I could bury my fist in. Like the head is like that concave where I'm just like, oh my God, like the, the, the things you've seen, you know, because yeah. I think most of the time when we do see these, I'm like, dude, they're, they're one shot because A, like we tend to lose a lot of them because they tend to leak a little bit more. And B, I was like, man, like you got to imagine like, especially if you get like a mezcal it's like cool that was probably they buy a lot of jack barrels so it was like it was probably jack and then it went to a tequila distillery and that tequila distillery then sold it down to a mezcal place and i mean a mezcal in barrels is kind of an unusual thing to begin right. with mezcal right. is usually white so it's like there's not that many of those so it's like well it's at least three uses before i'm gonna get it for a, a fourth use i'm like yeah we're the last and final yeah. i'm like yeah. there, there's no there, there, there's this. no done after this so like yeah. you know if you're talking about uh you know i came from the wine country and so then we'd always talk about you know quote unquote neutral oak right yeah. this this philosophy and winemaking that you know you can structurally the barrel's fine but in terms of it um chemical composition or chemical contribution to the maturation of the barrel it's like relatively exhausted right mm -hmm. i mean and you can kind of do stuff like that with with whiskey you know if you want to but again, it's sort of like with the rules that we have, it's like you take a bourbon out of a, a proper new barrel and you put it in a quote unquote neutral oak. Well, you just stop the clock on that bourbon. It is now whatever age you dumped it yep. out at forever. Yep. I'm like, oh, you took it out at four years from that first barrel. That's a four year old bourbon forever. Yeah. You know, unless you want to get five years into that resting process. Now you can say it was rested for five years, but you could never say it was aged for four. Right. This is just the oddity that we have. Right. Yeah. You know, whereas uh, if we were in Scotland, that'd be a nine year old barrel of whiskey. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and okay, so that's a good that's a good caveat. Um, and I know it's off topic of, of what we're going on, but but this is this is a good conversation because do you and I and I'm I can guarantee that you do, how how do you feel about the laws around bourbon, quote unquote? Like obviously with this barrel shortage, uh demand whatever you want to call it i know everybody's making whiskey now everybody's doing the thing sure. um so like here, should, should they have should they may be more lenient on using used oak and stuff like that like uh, how do I you think feel? we can i think we can look at two historical examples so one is the 125 proof entry point so it right. used to be that you had to put bourbon in at or around 100 proof that was the mm -hmm. standard um they had like the the government did a white page in like the early 1900s and basically determined looking at our distilleries and also noting sort of the world tradition to go in more like 140 um that they thought you could maintain the character of bourbon so long as you didn't exceed 125 proof and principally at the time they were battling a shortage of quarters on oak to make barrels from because there was just not enough wood to go around the same situation we find ourselves in today right um 
so there's an instance where basically the government came in and you know essentially the ttp has a interesting role with bourbon or interesting history it's like they consider it this uniquely american thing and it really is low entry proof relative to the world mm -hmm. uh new barrel requirement very very different from the rest of the world um, and they kind of look at these as like key signifiers. And then you can look at what happened back in like the 60s, 70s, um, you know, basically as uh, white rum and vodka were taking over spirits and a lot of bourbons were like legacy brands were dying. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them tried to lighten their spirits to compete, to make them more palatable to consumers. There was an effort actually to basically take what is now the um, classification of light whiskey and right. expand bourbon to basically those requirements where you could use a used barrel, you could you could distill it above 160, which is the upper limit right now for bourbon, and you could put it into the barrel quite high, you know, up to like 140. You know, I think it would be 160 entry, and then, but you know, practically that would be about 140, looking at what's really done in the world. Um, and the TTP sort of rejected that notion and created a separate class. So, and I think to the benefit of bourbon drinkers everywhere. Because I think if they had diluted the requirements, we would not have this uniquely American spirit today. Absolutely. Because we would have moved more towards something that's like light whiskey or, you know, even you have like, uh, you know, in the classification, you have like uh, whiskey distilled from bourbon mash, yeah. which is essentially it's bourbon. We just put it in a used barrel. Right. But the TCP, I think, is always going to point at those things like, hey, if you want to make something under those parameters, we have a classification for you. Right. Um, you just got to call it this. I mean, right. to be fair, like we have whiskey distilled from bourbon mash for blending purposes and premium American. And while it is bourbon-esque, I would say there are certain elements of it that are way more like Irish whiskey in terms mm -hmm. of brightness, fruitiness, things like that, because it does not have that really distinct flavor of that virgin chard oak. Right. And it's so, I mean, here's my thing is like, you know, could you expand the requirements a little bit to allow secondary aging and other vessels after um, after primary aging? Maybe. Right. I think that might be useful just in the sense that you're like, listen, we would like to put more age on this, but, you know, we want to get it out of its first vessel, you know, because we don't want to over oak it. Because right. you also see that like American bourbons, for the most part, do not have like the um, Titanic age statements of like some scotches. Like Absolutely. there's like. 50 year old scotches, 40 year old scotches. You could never do that with bourbon. No, there'd be never. nothing there. <laughs> A, our climate does not permit it. And B, it's just like, um, yeah, it's just like there's the way our aging scheme works, there's just no way to do it. You would no. you would never consider doing it. No. Um so I mean, like, could you change it a bit? Could you relax it a bit? Maybe. Here's the thing is like, you know, this is the second great barrel shortage that I've endured in my career. Right. You know, the first one was like wrapping up just as I entered the industry. And, you know, the industry recovered from that. And, you know, we came back to basically a time where barrels proliferated, many new cooperages opened up, and for a while, barrels were quite cheap. Um, you know, and I think right now we're probably about three years away from essentially the production meeting, catching up with demand, perhaps. I don't know how many more distillers are going to keep opening in Kentucky because it seems, you know, you know, I think uh, there's going to be portions of Kentucky that start to look a lot like the, the you know, the countryside, the countryside of Scotland near Speyside, where it's like yep. there's 60 distilleries in a 50 mile radius. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, know, you can sit in Rothlis and Speyside against the River Spey, and literally from where you stand, you could, in 50 miles in any direction, you could hit 60 distillers. Yep. Um, we're getting there in Kentucky. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think you know, also look at other places like Texas has a tremendous amount of stories. Colorado has a tremendous amount of stories. New York has a tremendous amount of stories. California has a tremendous amount of stories. So it's not a, you know, we're way less geographically confined. You know, right. I, I always tell people, I was like, there's five distinct whiskey regions in Scotland. You could fit about six or seven Scotlands inside of the landmass of Texas. So I'm like, you know, is my whiskey different from stuff up in Dallas, Fort Worth or yes. Waco or San Antonio or the Hill Country? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You know, is stuff different? You know, if, if I make whiskey at the northern tip of Scotland and I make it in the south of Ireland or I make it, you know, down in London or I make it over in France or Switzerland or Germany as they're doing now, it's like, yeah. don't you assume all those are going to be very different? Yeah, it's the same thing. Because you can slap Texas over most of those and you'd still fit them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and that's one of the cool things that we've we've talked about in the past is the different regions of Texas. And, you know, they have the Texas Whiskey Trail and it's actually divided into different areas because obviously you can't do it all in one day. There's no way you're nice. not going to do it. So it's like you literally could do the Dallas-Fort Worth area, maybe go up to Denison. Yeah, it maybe make that trip up to Iron Route, maybe. Um, you know, you yeah. could do that little area. Then you, you might want to the, start there and move south. Start there and move <laughs> south, exactly. And then, and then you could do the little hill country area, uh, which is a lot. You know, that might take you two days because there's a lot of distilleries. I mean, you know, everywhere from where I'm at to, uh, you know, closer to where you're at. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have your region and then you have, you know, they're all over. So it's really cool to see, obviously, all these distilleries pop up with their different variations. Um, Obviously, I'm a big Andalusia whiskey fan. And so like their little profile that they do 20 minutes away is totally different at Milam and Green, you know. So it's like it's so it's so it's so cool to see. But And I I think it's like, you know, there's like four elements that really make a distillery unique. People, ingredients, process, um, and location, location, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, location is a big one, right? Just where you put the thing matters. Could You can run the other three things identical, because yeah. basically you can look at the whiskey tradition of, of Japan and the whiskey tradition of Scotland, and they basically have everything the same except location. Yes. And sure, the Japanese put a little bit of their spin on it, but basically the Japanese love scotch so much, they just said, we'll just do this at home. And they literally imported all of the equipment, the ingredients, everything, and brought it to Japan and and created their essentially their own whiskey tradition in homage, basically, to Scotland yeah. and Scotch whiskey. Um, but I think also, you know, you talk about like, okay, like, what about when they're really close like that Andalusia and then looking at Milam and Green? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, well, Milam and Green, you look at uh, how that's led there and kind of some of the people involved in it. It's like, well, that's way more of like a... Kentucky sort of ethos or practice where you look at something like Andalusia it's like well that's totally different a they're producing very different products I think Andalusia kind of moving more towards that American single malt category and I think you kind of see this I don't want to call it a divide but maybe you see these two unique sort of offerings from Texas one is bourbon a very Mm -hmm. traditional product and then you have sort of this more bleeding edge product which is you know American single malt uh, as that continues to to develop here and I think Texas honestly has some great examples on both sides. Yes. You know, so I think we're pretty, I think, hey, we're pretty fortunate because you don't see that everywhere. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's like culturally, it's just like, yeah, listen, the cultural practices at Andalusia versus Milam and Green are going to be monstrously different. Yes. And I'm like, yes. those cultural practices inside of production makes so much difference. 
yes. um, in terms of the final product that that distiller is going to create for consumers to enjoy. Yeah, and and another cool thing, um, you know, with with all of that difference is, and th this is just speaking for most Texas distilleries. I don't know how it is in Kentucky. I know there's a lot more competition over there. Ninety five percent of the Texas distilleries are like, dude, you're doing cool shit. I want to, you know, collab with you, or I want to do this. Like, so all of you guys are like, just basically cheering each other on. And that's why we have this Texas whiskey festival and the bastards ball so that everybody can kind of uplift everybody else and be like, I want to try what you have your new stuff. Cause I want to try yours, you know? And, and it's like, everybody, you're not fighting over recipes. You're not fighting over that. Cause it's so different everywhere you go. And everybody's yeah. so happy to be like, Dude, you guys are doing cool shit. That's cool. I love that. You know, so it that that to me being a part of that is is really cool because obviously I love it, but at the same time it's it's very uplifting to the community. And you know, Texas boys are going to be you know pro Texas, and that's just that's just how it is. Um, not to say I don't love some good you know Westward and stuff like that. I I love all all whiskey. I'll drink anything. You hand me a glass, I'll drink it. But um, I don't know. I don't like, I don't really care for the Abasolo from Mexico. That's not great. Oh, but, um, gosh. <laughs> we can get into you know, that it's, later. It, yeah, that's the whole thing. I mean, yeah. that's, um, I mean, to be honest, this whole thing with kind of this really friendly spirit of sort of this um, community of distillers in Texas is something quite unique, uh, in my opinion, coming from sort of the California being over there for nearly a decade in that industry. Um, it's way less friendly. Uh, it's way more competitive. I mean, to the point where I think, you know, California is a little bit smaller than Texas and somehow has like two competing distillers guild for the state title. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, that's, that's how fractionous it can become over there sometimes. Um, in Texas, among whiskey distillers, it's, it's incredible, incredible to me, the spirit of cooperation. Um, to a certain degree, I think the stubbornness of Texas legislature really does aid us in a certain respect because you have to be so determined and organized here to get anything passed. Yes. You know, because it's, it's, it's every two years and you better be willing to sit down and mount like a 10 year campaign on some of this stuff. I'm like, gosh, if we were fighting each other, we'd never get an alignment on this stuff to get it done because none of us are big enough to do it alone against these yes. big, big uh, package store lobbies and yes. things. And I think, you know, in, in California, it's a bit different. You don't have big package store lobbies like you do here. Um, you don't have that kind of stuff. So it's, I think to a certain degree, like the, uh, how do we put this? Like the, the very, I hate to say it, like Texas for whiskey producers. I don't want to say it's unfriendly, but it's certainly not particularly helpful all the time. No, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, they love us, but you know, it's, you know, we don't get any favors. Um so I think as a result, it's like we, you know, well, who do you turn to in a situation like, oh, this guy over here is going through the same thing I'm going through. He knows yeah. what I'm feeling. Like, hey, we can be friends. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, let's definitely be friends. And I mean, I think even just here in our little Houston community of distillers, like we all know each other. We all help each other out where many of us are collaborating or working together in different ways. And, you know, I think many of us were super happy to see the kind of the positive turn in the legislature this last session that yeah. basically allows some of the smaller producers to tap into some of the larger producers base essentially production base and really help us propel our industry as a state because yeah. um, previously it's like everybody had to build up their own basic capacity which i'm yeah. just like that is the most insane capitalist proposition i have ever heard <laughs> where you're not allowed to go over to a guy and be like i'd like to buy some of your capacity for a slight premium because it's cheaper than me developing it myself can i do that oh no i'm sorry 
Um, the, the folks over in Austin say that's a no-go. Um, so it's, I mean, I think a lot of us, you know, there's great things coming, I think, from that, you know, with some of the abilities that we've been given to operate with, that it gives it gives us just a lot more base, a lot more capacity to work within. Um, I'm super in, encouraged by that and the progress that, you know, uh, the Texas Whiskey Association and also the, the Texas Distilled Spirits Association um, and all the work that's been done by those folks out there. I think, you know, A, it's been an incredibly long struggle. I've, I've been in it for like five years and then five years, I'm like, how on earth do you guys get everything, anything done out here? Because I can yeah. remember when Texans got to sell bottles before we could even sell a bottle out in California originally. And then like we had to wait like another three years to be able to sell a bottle. And I remember being so jealous, but it was like, oh no, it's like two bottles per 30 days. So I was like, yeah. oh shoot, I take that over nothing. And yeah. then being out here now, it's like, we just got up to four. And I was yeah. like, you know, and in California, it's like two bottles per person per day. Yeah. And I was just like, guys, I mean, oh. like, most people don't show up to a distillery like a liquor store. I don't know why yeah. the liquor stores think that's the case. You yeah. know, it's like yeah. uh, like farmer markets and grocery stores. You know what you don't do in a farmer's market? Shop yeah. for noodles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like you're still exactly. going to go get rice and noodles over at the grocery store. You know, exactly. you're still going to get most of your liquor at the liquor store. Well, and, and that's and that's part of it. And, you know, we don't have to hash into this at, in, anymore. But it's like when you get into that three-tier system and all of, all of those things, which we've talked about in nauseam, but, um, you know, it, it turns into like, if I want to come to your distillery, I want to come to Yellow Rose and let's say you have five offerings on the table for me to try that are your baseline offerings. And then you have, oh, here's a single barrel. Oh, here's a finished whiskey. Oh, here's this. Oh, here's a, a, a canned cocktail that we made. I can't get any of it. You know, like I can get my four bottles, which is great. I'm glad they raised it. But like at the same time, how many times are, you know, I'm sure you get a lot of repeat customers in the area, but people traveling, you know, you're going to get once a year, something like that yeah. as they come through. So it makes it really difficult uh, for somebody like me, who is a whiskey enthusiast, collector, whatever you want to call it, um, to be like, hey, I want a couple of offerings. I don't want to just be like, here's my two bottles. Let me go home. You know, like it, yeah. it, it turns into an issue. So, of course, you know we all kind of skirt the line and put our wife's name and stuff down as well. So we make it work. We make it work. But bring, the, bring your second ID. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, military discounts or, you know, whatever, but it, it, it's really cool to see that everybody in Texas, all the distillers, they're all backing each other to be like, Hey, we need to get some legislation change. We need to get this to where we can get product to the customers. Yeah not saying anything about the liquor store. Hey, liquor store can do their thing. They're getting some cool stuff. I went there today. They're getting some cool single barrels. They're getting all this cool stuff from Texas distilleries, which is awesome. I love it. But mm -hmm. also I want to be able to per get that from you because I would rather pay you than them. I hate to say it, you know, oh, one, yeah. one, one yeah. less dollar the tax man gets is, is that much better, but I mean, uh, yeah, go ahead. And we love it too. And a lot of times, you know, we have like tasting room exclusives because of like, I want to reward the people that walk through my door. And I know exactly. that they may only walk through it once in a year and they yep. may only walk through it once in a lifetime. And I yes. really want to have something special on the table for them to consider buying when they do that or consider, or just to taste, yes. you know, that we're really proud of. Um, yeah, but it's, I mean, it's tough with the restrictions that we have, obviously. And I think, you know, I mean, I can tell you from looking at the data, it's like the vast, vast number of consumers that we get in a year are one or two time customers. It's yeah. like 95% of it. 
Yeah. I mean, like that repeat business segment. And I'm like, and that's like volume based. That's not right. like individual based. That's the volume. Like the number of consumers I have that come more than twice in a year to who basically wait out their 30 days more more than once. I'm right. like, it's it's the it's the vanishing minority of people. Yes. Absolutely. And you know, I'm like, the reality is I'm like, especially here in Texas, most people are just gonna go to the liquor store. They're conditioned for it. Yep. Um, you know, it's like they can only get one thing from me. That's not terribly convenient for most no, people because, <laughs> uh, I mean, if people shop at the liquor store, like I shop at the liquor store, it's like, well, I got about three or four things I got in mind here and yeah. I'm willing to be persuaded on one or two more. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making an, uh, an indulgent spend. Let's yes. say it's not a horrible indulgence, but I'm, I'm indulging myself a little yes. bit. And I'm like, you know, I'd like to discover some things. There's a couple standards I want to have in the cabinet, and, right. you know, Hey, you know, I'm looking for baby. I want to try some sort of new Irish. Or, hey, I'm. Right. I want to. I want to have a. I want to put another Highland Scotch in the cabinet, or you know, that's reasonable, or whatever it is. Or, hey, I need a gift. Or I'm like, listen, you know, we're not a liquor store. We we just sell the stuff we make. You know, I think if if we see more report more report repeat business for anything, it's for people coming to us almost like a a bar or a hangout. Because yeah. um, like the neighborhood that the distillery in was like it was very much like a light industrial manufacturing neighborhood when the distillery got started, right? And through the course of redevelopment in Houston, like we now have like townhouses going up all around us. Okay. So like, uh, which is nice, you know, yeah. because now we actually have like people in the neighborhood. So right. you know, like we have bingo, we have steak night, we have right. kind of all these sort of like standard fair things for people to come in and socialize and enjoy some product and like we have a bingo crew, which to me, I just kind of laugh about. I was like, we have a bingo crew? Like, oh yeah, and we have a steak night crew too. I was like, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. One of these nights, I'm going to come in and meet the bingo crew. And say right, hi. exactly, exactly. <laughs> Thank you guys for coming out, enjoying a cocktail, and playing bingo. I appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and this this is a perfect caveat um, to kind of wrap it up. What one one thing I wanted to to have you talk about, um, if you still can, um, is is kind of like your lineup of of, oh, sure. of the whiskey of the whiskeys you have uh, available and the things that are in store and some of the special things like you were saying that you have that are distillery exclusive um, mm-hmm. because I know um, in the past seeing y'all at festivals and stuff you have some really cool uh, little off shelf things that you guys are doing and it's really exciting um, I I was actually able to pick up uh, at the last whiskey festival at a specs or total wine which you know they take them take them or leave them a 10th anniversary bottle of y'all's and uh oh uh oh he's got it that's it that's it yes <laughs> and uh i have yet to open it it might be a, a this weekend type thing since we're talking but um yeah. but it's it's really cool to see like special offerings getting out there in the shelves because obviously i can't make the i don't know what is it five five and a half hour trek down there all the time just to you know just, just to, to sample grab a bottle the, yeah just to sample the new thing i'm going to it's going to happen i said that to everybody i said that to robert licorice with iron root i'm going up there too so it's like i gotta go both ways but anyway um but so kind of tell us your your offerings and what you guys have obviously besides the rye and you know some of the other things you have uh so the core lineup is basically the uh, premium american blended whiskey and i mean it's it was designed in to basically blind test against crown in store demos. Okay. That was the the whole thing. That was the design intent behind it. So it was really, it was, it was designed to get a store-based swap from 
Crown to Premium American. So sweet, very light, very drinkable. Um, you have the rye, which you're drinking right now, which again, mm -hmm. MGPI, uh, Indiana sourced rye, uh, blend of one and three year old, a little bit less intense on the spice, more approachable in that respect. Really and good. Then you have our, our two bourbons. So one is this one, which is the Harris County, our newest offering, which is a okay. high rye style. And while the okay. filtering, you're going to have to work that out a little bit. Yeah, no, I got it. Um, <laughs> so 65, 25, 10 corn, rye, and malted barley. Again, okay. all Texas grain, um, straight bourbon. Um, pretty much a, it's a real true high rye. Um, great flavor, sweet, really, really, really interesting. A lot having a little trouble getting it everywhere in Texas so far, it's doing great basically in the two major Mexroplexes. So it's doing, we got it very well distributed down here in Houston. Right. We're getting a lot better distribution up in Dallas, Fort Worth, but in terms of getting it out West to Austin and San Antonio and everywhere out there, or even getting it more South, um, you know, like we're having a little bit of trouble there, just getting the distributors to bring enough stock and product into those areas. We're working right. on it kind of a thing, right. uh, but that's our newest offering. And then kind of the, the classic standard for us in the main portfolio is, is the outlaw bourbon, 100% yeah. Texas yellow dent corn. Again, um, still has that one year age statement on the back of the bottle, but basically all the liquid that's been going in now for over a year has been straight. Okay. Um, we just haven't made that adjustment basically with the, the new filing with the TTB and the new labels. We have a new full new label set that's been developed. We're just working through the marketing end of things right now yeah. on package development and some other mm -hmm. things before we roll that out, that change out. And then, like you mentioned, the 10-year anniversary, that was a, a really fun project that involved taking uh, Outlaw Bourbon, putting it into brand new um, barrels that were also had specific different toast levels on them. So okay. it was basically 10 different barrels that got refilled. And then those 10 barrels made the batch that became the 10-year anniversary. So okay. we just hit that number 10 as many times as we could, basically. <laughs> um, and then more recently, what we have coming up here is we actually have a Mezcal finished outlaw bourbon uh that will be straight um that's going to come here to texas uh also be available at the distillery and then for a distillery exclusive this year we're going to do a uh a cognac finished outlaw that we've done a couple of okay. different iterations as um private barrel selections or single barrel selections here there and everywhere um but we've kept one for ourselves that we're going to bring out this year in the tasting room as a tasting room exclusive sweet that, i mean that that is so cool that y'all are that y'all are doing that because like you know, everybody has their basic offerings and the basic offerings are great. Don't get me wrong. Uh, the Harris County is to me, like it's the quintessential bourbon, but it's not, it's a quintessential Texas bourbon. You know, it has a lot of, it has a lot more spice to me, it has a lot more spice, yeah. but, but it's not like super spicy, like a, like a, you know, blow your head off uh, with the spice. Yeah. We, we, we truly try to avoid that spice bomb character. Right. Like, you know, of course we find those barrels when we go through the lots. Like I just went through like a hundred barrels of Harris and there were definitely some that like the notation was spice bomb. Right. So it's like when we build up the batches for those, like, okay, like let's only, let's spread these out. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, we got to exactly. dilute, we got to dilute the spice dilute out. Dilute that of, a little bit. I'm dilute like, you know, my bit. other note, like, looks like we're a little bit weak on the note side for spice here. So let's chuck a spice bomb in there and see <laughs> yeah. what happens. And, you know, um, yeah, no, it's, you know, I've, I've always gotten, so acquainted now with drinking texas bourbon i kind of forget that like we've we've sort of formed this unique subcategory uh for texas bourbon if you know if it, it, people always ask me well how do you define texas bourbon i said it's a one-word qualifier the word is bold um 
much like Texas itself, much like the people of Texas, it's a no holds barred sort of a thing. I'm like, we just go for it. And, you know, it's, it's unabashed, it's unapologetic. And, you know, if you don't like it, it's not for you. All right, we'll move right along. You'll find something you like over there. And we oh. kind of don't care if you don't like it. Yeah. Um, which to me, I'm like, it's a lot of fun to make a product like that. Yeah. It's just like, hey, we're going to do our thing. And we're going to be real proud of it. And I think, like you said, Texans love Texas products. Yes. Uh, you know, we're very fortunate in that respect. I would say like the, the state level pride here in Texas is the strongest I felt anywhere yeah. um you know and coming from a place where i thought like you know california prides itself on all california grown or california whatever but i was like oh you guys got you got nothing on texas um yeah. realistically yeah. speaking yeah absolutely absolutely and and that's and that's one of the other cool things is you guys are leaning into that and you're you're taking that and running with it and i can't wait to see you know the, the cool stuff there have you thought and i'm going to throw this out there you know being a single malt guy have y'all thought about a single malt so we've done one historically in the past okay and i know we kind of talked out at the head of this thing yeah. about sometimes that things don't work out so well and they're kind of these how do we put these like operational financial right. market um i don't want to call them failures but let's call them lessons um we had a single malt that was a big lesson and it, okay. it kind of predates my time here at the company and I sort right. of inherited a bunch of the liquid and I'll, I'll be honest, like the numbers on it are real bad um, in terms of the financials. Right. Now that being said, I'm like, have we thought about doing something or bringing something out? I've certainly considered it. And I think kind of with the way the law can work now where we can sort of, we could go in somewhere that's a little bit better set up to run and make it right. and sort of like do a liquid to design and spec then yeah, I mean, I think we could do something like that and then we can kind of take it from there. Like, okay, we're going to take the white, we're going to put it in barrel, we're going to own the entire life cycle of this thing except for that that first little bit of production. Right. And we may look at doing something like that. Okay. Um, I think for us, you know, there's a couple of projects there I'd like to do. American Single Malt is one of them, uh, as is a weeded. Because um, oh, yeah. yeah. that's kind of the thing that, you know, I'm like, cool, we have 100% corn, which is like, that's way deep in the craft niche. Mm-hmm. And, the, and you have a high rye and it's, it's real high. So it's like, you know, that's kind of in your more traditional niche, but the thing we're sort of missing and I feel almost like is a missed opportunity, especially in Texas where we grow so much wheat mm-hmm. would be a true Texas weeded bourbon, yes. which, you know, and a certain, you know, well-known distillers that start with a G uh, are pretty famous for that. But, yes. um, you know, and yes. I love Dan. So, you know, yeah. and we get along real well. But it's like, hey, Dan, I might just have to rip off your idea there because everybody yeah. loves a weeded bourbon. Um, but so, you know, I think that's kind of the two big things to my mind I'd really like to see us play with, along with maybe some more experimental corn variations on some mm-hmm. of our mashables. Like, you know, let's bring in a, you know, a Johnny Red or, you know, some yeah. other of these more heritage varieties for substitution mm-hmm. on the mash bill and kind of yeah. see what we get as the point of differentiation. But you know, for me, those are kind of the, the larger projects. And then, you know, we just love playing with finishes because it's, yeah. I hate to say it, it's like, um, just like throwing, a, it's like throwing a filter on your camera. It's like, you can suddenly do a lot more with what you got. Um, so it's a lot of fun to do that. So that's kind of the angles we're working on right now. That's, that, that is awesome. Um, because, you know, it, it, and it also leaves you a lot to, to play with, you know, because doing the finishes, like we've talked about and doing the, you know, you have a core mash bill of different things and even just putting like a 5% Johnny Red in, it's going to change the mash bill completely. It's going to change the whole flavor. So like just working on that, you know, and I mean, I can't wait to see, I mean, y'all are, y'all are knee deep in it. Y'all been in the game for a minute. 
um, in Texas. <laughs> and um, I feel like y'all are just now getting your stride, which is really cool. And I'm, and I'm really excited about that. Um, and yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's going to be an amazing ride in the near future. Um, what, what you guys are putting out and with your, with your age statements, uh, have you thought about like a bald and bond or anything like that? Yeah, as well? I mean, I think it's I think it's definitely in the cards now working with four year old liquid. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd really like to reserve the bottled and bond for when we get into our full format barrels, because that right. four year old liquid that we're pulling right now is out of 30s. Oh, okay. so we could certainly make a bottled and bond out of 30s. There's a part of me that like I almost want to save that bottled and bond for that. Those kind of encounters we have with some barrels that we kind of set aside to save. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's certainly kind of been on my radar and I've been looking from like, you know, like there's been a couple opportunities here, like out of every, let's say hundred barrel lot that we look at, there's usually like about eight to 10 barrels that are kind of like a cut above the rest right? or, or truly unique. Right. And like, I'm kind of like segregating those out and trying to save the liquid. As I told my crew, I was like, Hey, listen, if we're making a cake, that's the sprinkle. Right. I'm like, that's this sprinkles. is like, these, these are, these are the toppers. I mean, yeah. I don't know how else to describe these to right. you. Like, they're so unique and different. Like if I bury these in the batch, we're just going to kind of waste them. Right. Um, you know, it's like, you know, you put sprinkles on a cupcake, you don't put sprinkles on a, on a, on a, a wedding cake. Right. right. So right. I was like, well, we're building a big batch. We're building a wedding cake, but you know, right. when we get to something smaller, I want to save this liquid for that. Um, so we'll see, you know, it's, it's certainly in the works potentially it's mm -hmm. i feel like bottle and bond because you only have two seasons to do it in a year right. you're a little bit restricted in that right. sense you know everything's got to come out of the same season from the same year um you know it's we're going to kind of see what the liquid gives us and something mm -hmm. like that because i feel like bottle and bond should really be one of those like it's going to kind of present itself you can go yes. looking for it we don't right. really have enough inventory to do that like dickle does or somebody like right. that who's kind of right. to my mind dickle kind of made bottles and bond famous recently it um, made it popular mm -hmm. and i think nicole did a great job out there with all of that in the last yeah. couple of years i think i've drunk through every edition she's made since she's been over at dickle um, and I'm, I'm like i'm positive there's there's one sitting here in my cabinet right now waiting for me to enjoy i'm sure I, I basically if i see it on the shelf i grab it absolutely uh, so yeah i mean We'll kind of kind of wait for the liquid on something right, like that, right. you know, either bottled in bonds, you know, another idea would basically be to um, rehash to some extent this this 10 year anniversary project that we did in terms of a secondary new barrel toast finish to do right. like a, a double barrel okay. um, or even like a double barrel bottled in bond potentially or something right. like that to kind that, of. That sounds cool. <laughs> so like we floated some ideas nobody go steal that that's mine right no, um, no that's it's all yours it's all yours all but right yeah i mean there's and there's so much fun stuff to try it's almost yeah. like the reality is to bring something out to market to really get it to a lot yeah. of people like the 10 years like it became we put a little bit of it out to market but we ended up kind of being a tasting room thing right because you know again with only 10 barrels with only being like a 500 something gallon batch with only having right. 400 something cases to push out i'm like you can hardly scratch texas with 400 cases yeah exactly so it's sort of like you know for me i'm like where we're at today i was like i'd love to do these but i'd really like to get them to scale where it's yep. like you we could take this you know hey if i'm going to take it to texas i want to take it everywhere right you know i want it in austin i want it in san antonio i want it down in you know, I want it way down south. I want it on the Rio Grande. I want it up in, in El Paso. I want it in Dallas Fort Worth and I want it in Houston. And it's like, you know, but to do that, you need a lot of volume. Um, yeah. you know, you're you're talking about thousands of cases at that point just to cover a state for yeah. one product. So those are big batches. You know, mm -hmm. that's 
for us, you know, that's thousand cases, you know, you're making 1200, 1300 gallons of liquid. That's a lot that's of a barrels. Lot. That's a lot. It's like 150 a lot. barrels easy for us on 30s, yeah. maybe 160. Maybe that gets down to about half of that on 53s. But for right. us, that's a lot of barrels. You know, we, you know, one distillation run for us fills about five, five to six barrels. Okay. If you can imagine how many distillation runs something like that starts to represent in terms yeah. of the calendar of our year. Yeah, absolutely. Like, well, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. That's a lot. All right, man. That's, that's crazy. I'm so excited for your guys. And um, um, also to all my, to all the listeners, thank y'all for listening. But as at the same time, go to Yellow Rose. Uh, if you're around the Houston area, go check them out. You know, obviously they're doing a bingo. Go play some bingo. Let's do that. Let's do steak get night. Get some steak. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, one more time, go ahead and uh, promote your socials, and then we'll get off. Uh, stick on. I want to talk to you for a second, but and then we'll uh, go from yeah, there. Yeah, sure. So uh, check us out at uh, yallrosedistilling.com. You can come in, book a tour, see our schedule of events uh, on Instagram at yallrosedistillinghouston, um, and then uh, for me at distillerlangen on Instagram. All right. So, guys, get out there. Whiskey's happening all around us, and uh, you need to be part of it because it's going to leave you in the dust if you don't. Um, but until next time, keep your spirits up. Peace.